This morning I, uh, once again, uh, return to a time of studying the teaching of Scripture on the issue of giving. Uh, The first week we looked at the Old Testament teaching on tithing, and I got ahead of myself in titling that sermon, and I've gotten ahead of myself in titling this sermon also. Um, The title of this sermon is not what it says in the bulletin. That will be next week's title. Um, This week the title is Bring the Whole Tithe into the Storehouse, and you'll note that this is a title taken from the text of uh, our correct scripture lesson for the sermon, which is Malachi 3, verses 8 to 12. Now, I want to re- go over uh, some of the things that we said last week because uh, more than usual, these three weeks are going to have a certain progression. And I'd start by saying to you that uh, if you were to ask yourself how much of the time during the week you spend thinking about money, thinking about possessions, um, thinking about uh, how you're going to earn it, how you're going to spend it, whether there will be enough. Um, Most of us would have to admit that this is a huge, huge percentage of our time that these thoughts enter into our minds. So even if uh, it doesn't seem like it's very pertinent to you to think about giving to the Lord, um, if money is a central part of your life, then I'd encourage you to think carefully about the degree to which you're as conscious of and thoughtful about the way that you deal with God and money as you are in the way that you deal with food or with your car or with your pension or with other things. Trust God that uh, every teaching of Scripture is useful, is necessary for your life. Uh, It might be that you don't have a job. Um, It might be that you don't have a job because God is disciplining you so that you will be dependent upon him for your income. In other words, even something that looks like it's absolutely clear that there's no use thinking about tithing or giving to the Lord, namely no income, something like that can be God's effort, not God's effort, God's way of dealing with our lives and causing us to come back into conformity with his word. Um, I remember being in the office of a... uh, I'm not sure what to call him, whether to call him a very, very, very wealthy man or a very, very, very poor man, because he was really both at the same time. Somebody whose life was completely uh, extravagant to the eyes of the world, but in reality he owed uh, the Internal Revenue Service uh, millions of dollars. And uh, in talking to this man, I remember him saying what I quoted last week. It's not the only time I've heard it, but uh, when I went to talk to him, he, he, he was suicidal at the time because of his financial position. You know, it's very hard to live publicly one way, but to know that the reality is something completely different. And in talking to this man, I remember saying to him immediately, you know, do you tithe? And this man laughing and saying, as I quoted him last week, saying, I make too much money to tithe. And I remember it just hitting me that the most basic commitment that this man ought to have had was not present in his life. And it was certainly no surprise that he had gotten himself into a real dilemma with the IRS. I mean, it's just a, a complete life of lack of discipline 
of lack of faith. That's what it is. And so I encouraged him to tithe immediately. But because money was such an idol in his life, I told him that the one thing he couldn't do is he couldn't tithe to the church. That we would not accept any of his money. And that really threw him for a loop. And I said, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm telling you to tithe because the church needs your tithe. It doesn't need your tithe. The church has gotten by quite well without your tithe. Uh, but you need to tithe. So you just pick some charity. It doesn't matter. If you want suggestions, I'm happy to give you some. But don't send it. You won't accept No, no, we won't accept it. Um, now, I don't know what ended up happening to that man, but if you're without a job... Uh, if you're bankrupt, if, if you're, no matter what your financial situation is, trust that that situation is part of God working with your life. And make sure that when it comes to the basic question of faithfulness to the Lord financially, that you're not acting contrary to the Word of God. Now, that brings us to the subject again today, and that is the question of tithing. Today I want to spend time talking about whether tithing is just something from the Old Testament or something that's also for New Testament Christians, because this is something that all of us are interested in. But first, I want to go over the reasons that we're studying giving at this time. Um, I mentioned last week that we're drawing to the end of a three-year stewardship campaign. And if we had been able to predict what would happen in the stock market, I'm sure we would have chosen other years than these years to go into this campaign. But we are drawing to the end. Uh, three years ago, we as a congregation committed ourselves to giving around $1.3 million for the purchase of property, uh, for the preparation of the property to build, and then for the building of a church home. Uh, you'll notice if, if, if you come here more than for an hour or two a week, you'll notice that we don't have Sunday school rooms here. This used to be Sherwood Oaks building, and they used to have a CE wing back on that side of the church, but it, was, it burned. And so obviously, you know, it's a sanctuary that's quite adequate, but it's not adequate for the tremendous numbers of children and, and programs that we have. So we need to build, and we need to finish up the commitment of three years that we all made uh, for the building of the new church home. We also have just brought on a new pastor, David Carell, who was here leading worship this morning to work with our families and to strengthen our congregational and family life. And uh, we have to provide the Corrells the support that we promised them when they accepted this call. Then we've just said goodbye to David and Terry Ann Wagner. And we miss them and their children. They've gone over to Africa to work uh, they're in a church, uh, the Church of Zambia, Christians in Zambia. They're in Andola, and they're training uh, future leaders for the church. And in order to do that, we uh, raised our missions giving 12000 a year. That was a lot of money. Uh, the first year of our church, you remember, we had basically one missionary. You remember that? Our missionary was Steve Berenzi over in Germany working with missionaries' children, teaching them. And we gave 500 a month, so our first year missions giving was $6,000. Well, now we're in our sixth year, and our missions giving is 50000 And so our missions giving has gone up in a, in a, in a steep trajectory. Um, and the last particular years have been quite steep because of taking on David and Terry Ann. And so we need to be faithful to that commitment. Um, Today, uh, 
our missions budget is 50. Our, our total ministry budget of everything except missions is 300. So about a sixth of our giving uh, to our local ministries goes to missions, which is a good percent for a new church that's also trying to build. But there's one other thing I wanted to add, and that is that today is the 1st of December. In a few weeks, we're going to close our fiscal year. And we're approximately, and you know, if, if you've dealt with... Uh, uh, I don't know what you call them, financial reports. Uh, it can be loosey-goosey as to exactly how much you're running in surplus or deficit. And so uh, I'm not exactly sure how much, but a week ago this, the, the amount I was told was 20000 that we're running 20000 behind our obligations. Now, that sounds like, so what that means is, in the month of December, we have to give 20000 more than we normally give every month to make up what we haven't given in the previous 11 months towards our obligations, okay? Now, look around. Look at the people sitting here. <clears throat> you know, where's that going to come from? Well, let me put it in perspective. A little bit of humor, okay, but it's true, all right? This last week, Mary Lee and I got a letter from the church that we grew up in, College Church in Wheaton. We're on their mailing list. And in the letter, they said that as of the completion of the second week in November, that they were 20% behind their giving. Uh, this is actually Heidi's church uh, up at Wheaton. She's visiting us this weekend. They were 20% behind in their giving for the year, and that that meant that church in the next six weeks needed to bring in 1.28 million dollars. So 20000 I mean, you know, all one of you has to do is just sell your car. We've got the money. <laughs> so, as one of my, our children, uh, actually, as Joseph said when he was home visiting us this week, things could be a whole lot worse than that. <laughs> so really, 20000 is a very small amount. So those are the three reasons. We have the building program, we have our increased missions giving, and we have a need to meet our obligations by the end of the year this year. Now, let me say that there is, in Scripture, a Holy Spirit continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. In Scripture, there is a Holy Spirit continuity, connection between the Old and New Testaments. Um, this is an issue that has application constantly to our life. Uh, and it specifically has deep applications and implications for the way that we handle money. If you look at the Old Testament and New Testament and you read, you'll quickly see that the Old Testament points forward to Jesus and that the New Testament points back to Jesus. Uh, you'll see that there is a continuity pointing to the blood of Christ that runs throughout the text of God's word. And it has been popular down through history to argue about what things change and what things remain the same in the Old and New Testaments. But I want us to start understanding that the author of all of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit has inspired holy men of old to write as they've been led, uh, for us to simply talk about those men is for us to fail to, to remember that behind those men was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
And so it ought not to surprise us that Isaiah could speak in Isaiah 53 in the way he does of our Lord Jesus Christ, having never seen him. It ought not to surprise us that we see in the book of Revelation where scripture draws to a conclusion this this glorious picture of what is to come after the second coming of, of the of the uh, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords receiving the honor that is his due. Because again, uh, John's writing is the Holy Spirit inspires him. He's able to see across all time. A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day to the Holy Spirit. When we come to the issue of money and giving, we should assume the same thing, that there is continuity and that that continuity is indicated by the writing of Scripture uh, as men who have been moved by the Holy Spirit have recorded the mind of God on this matter. Now, to remind us what we found in the Old Testament concerning the giving of the people of God, there are a few things I want to reiterate from last week. Number one, all of the ancient world tithed as an act that was religious in nature. Uh, if you go back in the ancient world, you will find that whether they were pagans or whether they were the children of Abraham, all of them had this method of showing their piety, namely that they honored their gods by giving a tenth of their income. And so really the scene that we have between Abraham and Melchizedek, where Melchizedek ministering in the name of God comes out to Abraham to bless him and to bring him bread and wine. Abraham, for his part ministers to God by giving to his servant a tenth of the spoils of his war. This is simply normal in the ancient world. We look forward and we see that Abram's sons did the same thing, and his grandsons and great-grandsons. We see Jacob when he has this uh, very, very awesome meeting with the living God, that his response in piety, in in fear and love of God is to say, I will now tithe. I will give a tenth of my income to God. We look through the Old Testament and we see that what was practiced by the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, was then codified. It was put into law and it was spread all through the Old Testament. It was a discipline. The people of God were to uh, show their piety, their, their holiness, by taking one out of every seven days and giving it to the Lord as the Sabbath, we see that they were to show their holiness by giving one out of one-tenth of all of their income to the Lord, and this was called the tithe. And so there's something very similar between giving to the Lord a part of our time through the Sabbath, giving to the Lord a part of our money through the tithe. It was a discipline that caused people to indicate their godliness. Now, what specifically did the Old Testament require of people? Getting down to numbers, because when it comes to money, uh, everybody can talk well, but numbers are where you really see where the heart is. Well, the people of the Old Testament had their hearts in heaven because they were constantly submitting to what to us is, a, is quite a rigorous program of giving. He, God required his people to give a tenth of their income to the Levites right off the top. So Melchizedek was the priest of God in the Old Testament. The priestly tribe was the Levites. Right at the top of the hour, the first thing people did was they gave a tenth of their income to this tribe who was then freed up to do the work of ministry. 
So that's the first tenth. Then there was a second tenth, a second tithe, and this was called the festival tithe. And this was a tithe that was used by each family to go up to Jerusalem and to party on the holidays or the holy days. Every holy day they go up to Jerusalem, they gather around, they eat, drink, and they'd be merry. But not in celebration of debauchery, but in celebration of their God who is good. Now this is what Thanksgiving and Christmas are meant to be. They're meant to be holy days where we celebrate the goodness of God, where we buy lots of food, where we have people in our homes other than our blood relations. And this is a theme. Um, I want you people to have people into your homes that don't belong to your family. Don't have your family. But every home should have an abundance of people so that our hearts are not just stingy, giving only to our own family. You know this, don't you? I, I was thinking about that this weekend, that Meryl and I grew up not even thinking about this. It, it would have been ludicrous that our home would have only had family relations in it. Never. And that doesn't mean that there were just... That, that doesn't mean that we just added one or two people. Our home was filled. And often the people that came were at least as gnarly as the Baileys. Uh, often they were what one might call social misfits. <laughs> and we just spent the day talking, celebrating the goodness of God, taking walks. I hope you have the sense to do this in your homes, to bring in people that can't repay you. All right. Anyhow, the Christian home is supposed to be a place of real abundance. And when it parties on holy days, it's supposed to, out of that abundance, give generously. It's supposed to have good meat. It's supposed to have good desserts. It's, everything should be provided to remember God because that's what Thanksgiving was. You know, don't, don't spare any expense. Go out whole hog. You know, That's what you're supposed to do. So that's the second tenth. The first tenth is set aside for the Levite. Second tenth, set aside for the celebrations of the goodness of God. It took place in Jerusalem. Uh, it took place uh, with lots of people. And... Remember, the preachers were supposed to be invited to those parties. I just want to remind you of that. The Levites, if you look in the Old Testament, the Levites were always invited there. And that's why, uh, well, that's why Eli was such a large man. I'm not going to put that in a commentary. but All right. So that's the second tenth. Now we're at 20%. All right. Then... There's a third tenth, but this third tenth is only every three years. So it really works out to 3% per year. And this third tenth is what is given for the poor. This is given to those who are widows, orphans, those who are sojourners, those who have had some tragedy happen to them, a sickness, not able to work. Every three years, they are to give a tenth of their income for the help of the poor. And then on top of that, we said last week that there was gleaning, that you were to set apart certain amounts of your fruit and your grain for the poor who would come along behind you. Maybe that would have been about 1% a year. We don't know. Uh, then on top of that, there were free will offerings that were used to build the temple. The people brought all their jewelry. The people brought their wealth, and they built the temple. They built the tabernacle. They built it just as God required. And there were all kinds of offerings in the Old Testament that were not the tithe, they were offerings. 
uh, and I mentioned that the burnt offering, the sin offering, the meal offering, drink offering, the trespass or guilt offering, first fruits offering, free will offering, thank offering, and the Passover offering. Now look at this. How much do you think the Old Testament person used to celebrate and to give glory to God? Everything from giving to the poor to the support of the Levites to the guild offerings to the Passover. Every, how much? Now think of these people. These people didn't have the abundance of Americans. Right off the bat, we can say that the tithe was about 23%. All right? Then you add on top all these other religious obligations, all these other times where they would give from their abundance. The beginning of the crops every year as, as fall came, they would give the first fruits to God. Now, here's the question then. And when you go through the Old Testament, you'll find a number of incidental occurrences of this kind of giving. In 2 Chronicles 31, you'll see that in the revival of God at the time of Hezekiah, revivals are never hypothetical constructs. They're always practical. And you'll see at the time of Hezekiah, the very, very specific things that happened. One of the specific things that happened is if you look at, uh, don't turn there now, but look there this afternoon, Second Chronicles 31, that the people were commanded to, to give the portion that was their due to the Levites, that the people were commanded to tithe all of the fruit of their field, uh, to bring in abundantly the tithe of all, it says in verse 5. Then later in the time of Nehemiah, there's a similar occurrence of the discipline of tithing being at the center of the restoration of health of the people of God. And of course, this doesn't surprise us that there's health that comes following a restoration of God's people using their wealth in the way that he requires. So now, the Old Testament's teaching can be summed up as follows. Number one, from ancient times, it has been a universal practice to worship God by giving to him a tithe of our wealth. Number two, the Jewish patriarchs followed this pattern with explicit accounts of both Abraham and Jacob doing so. Number three, the Old Testament law required the same practice of all the people of God. Number four, specifically, Scripture required the Jews to give a tenth of their income for the maintenance of their priests, the Levites, who did the work of their temple worship. Number five, Scripture also required that the Jews give a second tenth for the maintenance and celebration of their holy days. Number six, Scripture also required that every three years the Jews gave a tithe of their income to help the poor. Number seven, Scripture also required that each year the Jews give a portion of their fruit and crops to the poor who gleaned in their fields. Number eight, Scripture also mandated a host of other offerings as acts of worship of the living God. These were not tithes, but these were offerings that came out of the love of the hearts of the people. And number nine, as we come to the end of the Old Testament, we don't find even a tiny bit of loosening of God's commands on this subject. Rather, there's considerable tightening of God's commands con concerning two matters in the book of Malachi. Now, immediately, when you think of Malachi, you should think of two things, all right, at least. And one of them is the commands of God concerning the sanctity of the marriage relationship. Number two, think of Malachi as teaching the sanctity of God's commands concerning his tithes. Now, it's very interesting how the same people who would argue that the New Testament casts off any notion of a tithe would be very, very careful 
to teach what the Old Testament teaches about divorce and would quote Malachi, quoting God, saying, I hate divorce. You know, in Malachi 2, it says, The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And then verse 15, Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. We all know that quote. We all know that God calls us to be faithful in the winters as well as the summers of marriage. And there are many winters, and being faithful is not an easy thing. That's why so often church discipline is, is involved, because it's sometimes only shame will cause us to do what is right. We know this. This is... This is who we are, all right? And it's why also weddings are such big shindigs. You don't think that we're doing that just to give ourselves an occasion to party. It's to put an unbelievable weight on the couple of remembering everybody there hearing them take their vows and how everybody invested financially in their marriage, all right? This is all a symbol of the fact that God doesn't want us just throwing off the wives of our youth when we get the desire to do it. So now, take this marriage teaching and then come forward in Malachi also to the teaching on the tithe. And here is what this same prophet at the end of the Old Testament says about our money. He says in Malachi 3, verse 8, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And then here's God's answer. In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe, into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So there we come to the end of the Old Testament. God hates divorce, and we need to work hard to be faithful in our marriages. And God also hates people robbing him, and so we need to work hard to be faithful to his tithe. Now the question then comes, well... uh, It's clear in the New Testament and from the book of Genesis on that God has called us to faithfulness in marriage. But what about this tithe thing? I don't remember the New Testament saying anything about a tithe. Should we assume that Jesus and the apostles continue the Old Testament foundation of tithing for Christians? Or isn't it more a contrast with the Old Testament? Well, in a short form, here's my answer. It's amazing to me how often Christians use very sophisticated theological arguments to escape commitments that they don't want to have. Um, And yet how difficult it is getting people to see theological arguments when they don't serve their their purposes. (laughs) That's too difficult for me, Pastor. I'm just a simple Christian. But when it comes to tithing, well, I... You know, I think that here we have discontinuity with the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are different things, right? Um, Let me ask you this. If the New Covenant is the covenant of the Spirit and the Old Covenant was the covenant of the flesh, which is what many would argue, uh, but it's what Paul directly opposes in Romans, if it were true, then 
Do you think that a covenant of the Spirit would be more or less generous to God? I mean, obviously more. Obviously more. You know, they were looking forward to something that they didn't see. We are looking back to something that now has been put in technicolor vision, Jesus Christ on the cross. What did he not give up for us? So I start out by saying to you, when we come to considering the New Testament teaching on this, I don't see how anybody can possibly argue against tithing being a commitment of New Testament Christians. And you'll see, the real question isn't whether tithing is a foundational commitment of Christians. The real question is whether somebody who tithes can say to himself, well, I, you know, I've done my duty. That's the thing that the New Testament speaks against. When did Jesus do his duty? It's laughable to even think of Jesus doing his duty. He freely gave himself up for us. He put himself on the cross in obedience. There was nothing he held back. Nothing. And so, orientation is so often the key matter when it comes to being godly. And people who have stiff necks and, and backs, uh, I'm not going to convince them by what I'm about to say. But I just want to say to you, if you really think that there is mostly discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants, then what that really does is that puts you under a more severe obligation. You can't even take any comfort in the tithe because the tithe is a ludicrously small amount for someone who loves Jesus Christ. But I do want to get into a few things about the tithe in the New Testament. First of all, think about this. Uh, so often we think of the Old Testament and all those people and then we think of Jesus and his disciples, and then we think of the church, okay, starting in Acts. But what we need to get in the habit of doing is we need to get in the habit of looking at Jesus and his disciples and saying, what kind of lives did they live? Because Jesus and his disciples are the bridge between the Old Testament and the church. Now, what kind of life did Jesus and his disciples live? Well, you know right away that Jesus and the disciples observed all of the pious Jewish things. You know that. You know it because you see them at the temple. You know it because you see them at the Passover. You know it because you see them at the Festival of Booths. You know it because they're always around the scribes and Pharisees. And how could they be around them if they were forsaking the religious commitments of Jews at the time? Jesus was a Jew. Jesus lived as a Jew. Jesus acted as a Jew. Jesus worshipped as a Jew. And so Jesus and his disciples would, just as all other pious Jews of the time, they observed the holy days, they observed the worship rituals, they also observed tithing. There absolutely no possibility of Jesus and his disciples saying that when it came to giving, that, you know, they didn't need to worry about this, that, that this was an Old Testament stricture that they were freed from. And so when these Jews, who were his disciples, moved forward into the book of Acts, again, there was a, a certain discipline in their lives that you can see observed. For instance, we see them moving over to the celebration of uh, one day a week from the Sabbath, Saturday, to the Sabbath, Sunday, all right, 
But we don't see them stopping this. It's just that Sunday, because this is the day that the Lord was raised from the dead, they changed their observance celebrating the new covenant in our Lord. All right? And, and so we just take this for granted. We can see the progression through the New Testament church of this change in this day of celebration, the day that they gather. And there are a number of places in Scripture this is evident. And when it comes to looking at the church that Jesus and his disciples planted, what we see is from the very beginning a practice of tithing observed among them. One of the, one of the examples of this that we see in Scripture is uh, from the writing of Irenaeus, who was uh, a little boy who grew up listening to Polycarp, that great hero of the faith. And Irenaeus says this, he says, The Jews were constrained to a regular payment of tithes. Christians who have liberty assign all their possessions to the Lord, bestowing freely not the lesser portions of their property, since they have the hope of greater things. And what we see here, Randy Alcorn comments, not the lesser portions is a direct indication that the tithe was considered a minimal standard in the early Christian community. They were freed from this is a limiting thing to give all of their wealth. And we see this right away in the book of Acts. Remember, it says that they sold their possessions, they sold their property, and they gave to each one as he had need. So really, you had a very, very godly and pious form of socialism in the early church. It was far beyond a tithe. Uh, no one had anything they would call their own. This is what we're told right at the beginning about the New Testament church. And it carries on for centuries. Augustine, writing in the 4th century, says this, quote, Tithes are required as a matter of debt, and he who has been unwilling to give them has been guilty of robbery. He's just quoting Malachi. Whosoever, therefore, desires to secure a reward for himself, let him render tithes, and then listen to this, and out of the nine parts let him seek to give alms. Now, alms are the, is the amount that you give to the poor. So Augustine, again, showing this continuity, says the tithes we give, but then for the blessing of God, out of the other ninth, give to the poor. Exactly like the Old Testament taught. This is the great father of the church, Augustine. He assumes a distinction between the tithe and the offerings. And this is why to this day, if you'll listen to me, if I'm here or the others that lead sometimes do it, we will say, as it comes time for us to worship God with money, we will say, now let us bring to the Lord his tithes and our offerings. We don't say our tithes and offerings because we want to remind ourselves and you that the tenth that we give for the maintenance of this church and for the work of the body of Christ is a tithe that God is owed. The offerings are things that you give for the help of the poor, for a whole host of projects, everything from Hannah House to somebody in our church who needs educational and tuition support. All of these things are the way that we show our love for God. But the offerings are things that come out of the goodness of our heart as we love God and love his people. Jerome the great uh, Bible compiler and translator, uh, the Hebrew scholar, again writing in the 4th century, he said this, If anyone shall not pay tithes, do this, pay tithes, he is saying. He is convicted of defrauding and supplanting God. 
We look at the constitutions of the Holy Apostles, an ancient church document, and it says this. It says, quote, All the first fruits of the winepress, the threshing floor, the oxen, and the sheep, shall thou give to the priests, that your storehouses and garners and the products of your land may be blessed, and that you may be strengthened with corn and wine and oil, and the herds of your cattle and flocks of your sheep may be increased. You shall give the tenth of your increase to the orphan, and to the widow, and to the poor, and to the stranger. And so on. And so we see a great continuity from the Old Testament through the book of Acts where each one didn't count his possessions his own but gave to each as he has need to the first centuries of the church where we have a clear record of them continuing to the practice, the tithes for the maintenance of, of the church and then getting beyond that to the help of the poor and the needy, the orphan, the widow, those in distress. And when we read our Lord saying in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We can understand what it means to see this godly practice of money in the book of Acts by the Christians. Yes, this is a fulfillment of the law. And to this day, we begin to fulfill the law when we give beyond a tithe when we give out of the abundance that God has given to us, then our hearts are caught up in real worship. It's not a worship where, well, God says I have to do this and this and this and this. Well, I've done this and this and this. Now let's go home. There's no worship there. There's no motivation. And that's the thing that we're going to get into next week is studying this issue of motivation. Where are our hearts on this issue? But meanwhile, we do see a fulfillment of the law in the habits of the disciples. We also see it in the habit of the New Testament church. We also see it in the habit of the early church and the apostolic fathers. There's a great continuity, a great record of history left for us that we can learn from. Tithing is an integral part of the early church. In Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus says this to the leaders of the church at his time, the scribes and Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now, here's our Lord. He's not saying, why are you so rigid on this matter of tithing, you know? You're making fools of yourselves. Tithing your mint and dill and cumin, this is ridiculous. He doesn't say that. He says, you should have gone ahead and, and, and dealt with the weightier matters of the law, justice. You should have dealt with mercy and faithfulness without neglecting these. But why do you make such a big deal out of tithing your, 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 your uh, seasonings, okay? And yet, you don't have a heart for the poor. You don't have a heart for the unborn. You know, forget this when this isn't here. But he doesn't say, so, so, so give it up. He says, you should have done this without neglecting this. Do you see that? So Jesus, our Lord, makes a very clear statement. It's without neglecting the former. Gundry, in his commentary on this, says, Matthew sees no contradiction between strict observance of tithing and the law of love and mercy. And if I were to ask you whether as a New Testament Christian you believe in the law of mercy, which of us would say, well, no, that's an Old Testament covenant thing? <laughs> you know, it would be ludicrous. 
We all agree that, yes, mercy is required of Christians because our Savior is merciful. Jesus says you should have practiced that without neglecting the former. And in the church today, uh, we claim to have hearts that are very, very committed to mercy and to faithfulness and to justice. Uh, but too few of us claim to have hearts that uh, are scrupulous on the matter of tithing. And Jesus says, do them both. Both of these are good things. Uh, clearly, one is infinitely more important than the other, but that does not mean that the other does not have indications of where our hearts really are. Tithing was implicitly practiced among Christians. Josephus records that the early Christians continued tithing just as the Jews had done it. And when Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, writes this, he says, Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. The whole argument is implicitly endorsing the tithe of the Old Testament. How would he make the argument that today, in the New Testament church, we should give for the support of pastors and all the ministries of the church that our tithe goes for, unless he were pointing back to the Old Testament tithe for the Levites and saying, all right, here's the application of the New Testament church. And he just takes it for granted. He doesn't stop and teach them what the tithe is. He just says, look, this is what we did Back in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, this same principle still holds. John Piper says this about the text. He says, in other words, Paul reminds the church that in the Old Testament economy, there was this system in which the Levites who worked in the temple lived off of the tithes brought to the temple. The least, Paul is saying, is that the rest of Christians should support those who spend their lives in the service of the Word of God. But since he draws attention to the way it was done in the Old Testament as the model, it seems likely that tithing would have been the early Christian guideline, if not the mandate. And you'll go on, you'll see in the New Testament, again and again, a mention of Melchizedek. But then you'll see this little note in Romans 4.12. If you go to uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 7, you'll see a mention of his tithe over and over and over again, that he received a tithe from Abram. But then it says this in Romans about, Melchiz, about Abram. It says, Abram is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And then in Genesis 26, it says this about Abram. Abram obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So here you have it in Hebrews, this picture of Abram tithing to Melchizedek, the early Levite, as it were. And then you have Romans teaching us that Abraham demonstrated his faith with his obedience. And then you have in Genesis, it's saying that Abraham obeyed God. He followed God's laws. And so Abram tithed to God through Melchizedek. And again, it's only logical that this tithing is part of what the New Testament approves in Abram's faith. That he had the faith to live in a way that honored God by giving to the maintenance of divine worship. In 1 Corinthians 16.2, we read, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. 
Very interesting there, in keeping with his income. In other words, there should be some connection between what we put in the offering plate and what our income is. And it should be a matter we think about in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, Paul writes, no collections will have to be taken. In other words, have it done already so we can dispense with the preliminaries. We don't have to spend time on it. It's already there. You've saved it up. It's ready to be given. Now, here's the thesis that I think we can state. God calls Christians to place Him, our love for Him, our faithfulness, our commitment to Him, right at front center, right at the point where all of our culture calls out for idolatry, and that is in the way that we handle our wealth, our income, our money. And the beginning of that commitment is a tithe. There's no place in the New Testament where the Bible says, now that Christ has come, you can, you, you can loosen up people. The New Testament is only an intensification, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. All right? And so, to me, there's no question that New Testament believers need to demonstrate that they have faith in God by giving to him as a start a tithe. As a start, we don't start at 2% or 6 or 8. We start at 10%. That's the beginning. Now, next week, I want to go into the issue of going beyond the tithe and where our hearts are on this matter. But don't follow this constant temptation of New Testament believers of saying, well, you know, the Lord has my heart, and anytime he wants my money, he can take it. You know, show where your heart is by giving him your money. This is what Jesus taught over and over again. He taught us about money. He taught us about our, our, our dining room tables and our meat and who it goes to, to people that can't return. He taught us that at the judgment seat that we would be judged partly on the basis of how we handle our money. I was sick. You visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. All of this has to do with our money. And uh, so I just encourage you, see the great continuity of the covenants. See the great continuity of the covenants, particularly in the matter of the way you handle your money. Don't think as a New Testament Christian that you can chill out. You know, and, and God will be understanding because he has your heart. No. Where your, where your, there your, that's right. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And treasure isn't a hypothetical construct. Treasure is money. So look at your checkbook. We'll return next week to one more time of studying this. Let us bow our heads in prayer and ask the Lord to apply the teaching of his word to our hearts.